I'm Jim Irvin. Welcome along to another episode of You're Not On The List, the podcast dedicated to forgotten albums and the people who love them. As usual, I'm joined by two detectorists digging for gold with their ears, who this time happen to mix music and politics. Kevin Brennan, the son of a steel worker and a dinner lady, has been the Labour MP for Cardiff West since 2001. He held several junior ministerial offices during the Blair and Brown years, and most recently has been the Shadow Minister for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. And in May this year, he was voted Chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Music. He's also the guitar player in parliamentary rock band MP4, who've been releasing records regularly since their first EP, House Music, in 2005. He also released his first solo album of his own compositions, The Clown and the Cigarette Girl, last year on Revolver Records. In 1998, Tom Gray hoisted the Mercury Prize as a member of the precociously young band Gomez for their self-produced debut album, Bring It On. Gomez wound down 13 years later after album 7, but occasionally reconvened for successful tours and festival appearances all over the world. Tom has become a successful composer for film, TV and theatre, but is currently most visible as an activist on behalf of the music community. During lockdown in 2020, he launched the campaign Broken Record, pressing for fairer payments for musicians and songwriters in the streaming age. In 2021, he was elected chair of the UK Association of Songwriters and Composers, the Ivers Academy. And he was also the recipient of this year's Unsung Hero Award from the UK Music Producers Guild. Welcome, welcome. So glad you could join me for some of the old chin music. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Yeah, very well. Lovely, thank you. Kevin, we're recording at the end of a summer of discontent. There's been lots of pressure for Parliament to be recalled. And we've sat through this interminable Tory leadership contest. Why has that taken so long? Just the Tory party rules, I suppose, in the old days when Mrs. Thatcher was defenestrated, um, uh, it, it, it actually <laughs> happened, you know, over the course of a, a couple of days. But now what happens, the Tories put their top two from their MPs out amongst their membership and they go on a kind of, you know, tour. It's, I suppose, you know, it's not quite like being in a band, but they go on a tour where they just <laughs> play their favourites. The greatest hits. Around the country to the loving fans, uh, who then pick the winner. Even though it's completely irresponsible in relations to the governing of the nation, it's sort of re- re- providing a bit of A, entertainment in seeing them picking holes in each other uh, and B, probably ammunition for, for us as an opposition going forward about the, the things they've said to each other. I noticed that Liz is doing her best to alienate all other leaders of the United Kingdom uh, and Europe uh, while she's at it. We live in a very strange time of this sort of populist type of you know, right-wing politics, yeah. um, where it is fashionable to play to that kind of xenophobia and exceptionalism. It leads to, um, you know, uh, poorer international relations, and ultimately, it's no good for the country. Mario Cuomo, who was the great, you know, uh, governor of, of New York, who never ran for the presidency, famously once said, we campaign in poetry, we govern in prose. Well, I think that's been overturned by this leadership race. It's sort of campaigning in, in, in bigotry 
and and presumably they'll be you know governing in some kind of unjust way if if that is translated i can't see how the government can go on like this and i'm afraid it's unfortunately an indictment of, of where our politics is at particularly from the government tom you and kevin know each other you've both been involved in the broken record campaign how reluctant were you to dive into politics when you when you came to start that up <laughs> um i suppose my hidden dark, deep dark secret is that i've always been involved in politics you know sort of grew up in the labor movement and and sort of have a sliding doors moment in my life when i was about to go and work as an intern um in uh, in dc just as the band got offered its first contract and i had to choose between one thing and the other and i Chose rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> who were you? Who would you, you? You have been working with in DC then? Some some old senator. The, the details are, are lost to me. I'm afraid it's much like I lost my Mercury Prize. You know these things happen. <laughs> <laughs> you get pissed in the pub the night after, and oh, you lost it that that soon afterwards, did you? Yeah, yeah. you know. And then the the thing that looks like a prop from Xenia Warrior Princess uh, suddenly vanishes. <laughs> the, the magic crystal has disappeared. <laughs> Oh, well, if anyone knows where that is, do get in touch. <laughs> what was your um, first impulse for, for Broken Record? What was the first thing that made you think, I've got to do something about this? Um, you know, I've been working in um, uh, advocacy organisations for a few years. I suppose I've had conversations about the need for a streaming campaign for at least 18 months before I started tweeting. I felt that that was a moment and, then I, and that if we didn't seize that moment, we were going to miss it. And of course, organizations aren't particularly good at seizing moments. So I just seized it myself. And which was probably a little bit egotistical of me, but it, it needed doing. What was your first act? What was, uh, was it a tweet? How, how did you begin on day one? Yeah, I just started tweeting. I, 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 can't, I can't remember how many tweets I wrote, like 19 tweets in a row. And it, and it went sort of a little bit viral. And then suddenly I had a campaign on my hands. It all happened really remarkably fast probably over the course of a year brilliant people like kev picked up on it very quickly and started turning it into real world things how did streaming get to become unfair to musicians what was it about the way that was set up that that made it unfairer than previous systems it's uh it's sort of counterintuitive the way that it works because the amount of people uh, taking up streaming is is going at an incredible speed but the amount of money that they're paying for it is going down at the same speed because of family deals and duo deals and free giveaways, et cetera, et cetera, all these different reasons. And so, the, so what's happening is this curious thing where the average money that's coming per user of streaming has, been going, has gone down every single year since streaming started 14 years ago, as we know it, Spotify. Mm. That's the really crazy part, because, of course, this is replacing all of physical media at the same time. So we're losing this this media, which was put lots of money up front in artists pockets mm. that allowed people, you know, people could get by being quite small time artists selling 5000 physical records. And that could probably pay for them to live quite comfortably for a year or two. Yeah. The thing that I think is getting really squeezed is the sort of baseline professional artistry that used to be able to make a, a living for itself. But because they've got a fixed audience and the stream rates are going down, they're watching what little money they were making from streaming actually go down year on year. Yeah. And that's, that's this kind of weird Malthusian counterintuitive economics of it that 
is very destabilizing for the, 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 the whole culture of music. It doesn't lead anywhere good if we lose the sort of bedrock of professional music making. The big revelation for a lot of people uh, about Broken Record was, was that their subscription money for services like Spotify probably doesn't reward the artists they're listening to, does it? Uh, no. Well, I mean, that's, that's a very simple thing. Like, if, you, if, you're, if you're an average listener and you're listening to, like, five, seven hundred tracks a month on a per stream rate of around a third of a penny, you know, less than a couple of quid of your, of your £10 is going to the music that you listen to. The rest of your money is going to music being listened to by somebody else, somewhere else. It will go to the most popular music that's being sort of hyper-listened to. And whether that's being hyper-listened to by teenagers in their bedrooms listening over and over and over again to their favourite song, or whether that is going to people who leave Spotify playing in hairdressers and bars, we don't know because nobody's actually monitoring any of that. Um, explain equitable remuneration. How does Essentially, equitable remuneration was a right that was created for public performance of music to say that if the recording was being played in, a, in public, so it was being played in a space or it was being played on the radio, that that was in, in replacement of an actual performance of someone playing some music to them. So you're getting to enjoy their performance, but without them performing, right? It's, it's long established in public performance, and then it came into radio. And effectively, what we have suggested sort of all the way through this is that some sort of analogous right or remuneration ought to exist in streaming because streaming is primarily a communication medium. And in fact, it, it has a lot more in common with radio than it does with record sales. And Spotify has sections that it calls radio as well, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And of course, and just in all of that, where, you're, where the listener isn't choosing the music at their time of listening, it's very clear in the law, actually, that this is effectively communication to the public. Yeah. There's, if, there's a, if there's some AI choosing what you're listening to for the next couple of hours, you, you're clearly not involved in that. Kevin, you introduced a private member's bill on proposed reforms to a musician's remuneration. It, it got a second reading. Um, what were you aiming to do with that? What was the, the particular goal of that bill? I was aiming to change the law, yeah. but uh, um, unfortunately it ran out of time because it didn't get government support to give it enough time at this stage, although the government are considering proposals that were contained within the bill. So there's more to be heard from the government um, to come. And they've, they've, in, they've leaned in towards our arguments that there does need to be changed. The bill would have introduced into copyright law just what Tom was just talking about, um, equitable remuneration, some, you know, a payment for when your music gets streamed that would go to people who, who um, recorded that record. But it would also have introduced other reforms into the music industry, including, you know, recognising the difference in the balance of power when people sign contracts and so on. So it was a package of reforms um, based partly on what the select committee had concluded when it did its uh, economics of, of music streaming inquiry. Um, and a lot of those reforms are still under discussion in a part of the government called the Intellectual Property Office uh, and in the, in the Independent Competitions and Markets Authority who are looking into the whole way that the business is dominated by three very large foreign corporations who control most of the recording rights and most of the publishing rights as well and how that impacts uh, upon how songwriters, composers and artists get paid. 
Tom, a lot of musicians now use recordings as loss leaders, don't they, and, and make their money from touring and merch and stuff. Is even that model viable for, for musicians now? It's very hard to say. And in fact, the pandemic showed how relying on the touring side of the business is clearly um, not sensible. <laughs> and, yes. and, you know, there's no resilience there. Smaller bands have always struggled to make money from touring. But with Brexit and all these other things that are happening, inflation, the cost of touring has escalated significantly. Even if the big acts, and we're seeing it now, the really big acts are playing incredible sellout tours all around the world, the very biggest acts. But as a result, there is a long queue behind them to get into the kinds of rooms which make money for people. Because everyone's competing for the same rooms and everyone's, everyone's going from a standing start after two years. So, yes. <laughs> there's, so it's, it's, it, there's this huge delay. So people are having to sort of do shorter tours just to get out. That's not making them money. I mean, it's, it's really not great still. I mean, it's, if anything, it's quite bad. It's, not, it's quite bleak out there, let's just put it that way. Kevin, you've released your own uh, record recently uh, to streaming services and you've put stuff out with MP4 in the past. Uh, what are your expectations when you're, when you're doing this kind of release? Is it just to have material available in case anyone wants to hear it? Or you know, are you hoping it might kind of make a bit of a living? <laughs> I was thinking sort of world domination, uh, <laughs> possibly, you know, Ivan Novello Awards, yes. Awards, you know, that kind of thing. And Mercury might, would, would be all right. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've always made music all my life and uh, have written songs and so on. Uh, I didn't expect to be making records when I became a member of Parliament, if I'm frank, and I just bumped into there was a guy called Pete Wishard who is the keyboard player with Runrig, well-known Scottish band for 18 years. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, a guy called Ian Causey who played semi-pro all his life, very good musician, bass player, singer. And uh, the, the idea was, would we be the first generation of members of Parliament who had the skills to form a rock band? And I think it was quickly decided we'd never find a decent drummer. And then at that point, a Conservative MP called Greg Knight walked past as this was under discussion between Ian and Pete and said, if you're looking for a drummer, you found one. And it turned out Greg had played in a lot of, you know, kind of round the clubs in lots of soul bands and things in the 70s and early 80s. Oh, funny. Uh, Semi-pro. So so actually, we got together and found, as you do that, that strange thing with groups, isn't it? You know, either it clicks or it doesn't. And we clicked together very easily as a, a band, so carried on doing it and obviously got asked to do things both by the industry as well as doing some charitable stuff and... And, and made some recordings uh, and, and enjoyed doing it. And then on the solo side, I've always written solo material and there comes a time when you think, you know, I really ought to uh, do a decent effort at recording this. And I work with a great producer called Jerry Diver and I was really, really pleased with the results. Had you been gathering material for years? Is, are these songs you've you've had in your bag for a while, or was it is it all new stuff? As a debut album, yes, typically it was. So some yeah. of them dated back quite a long time. Others were very recent, and you know at least one was written while I was recording it. So thematically, um, you know, it was it was a type of music that I don't play with MP4. It was more in the kind of inner sort of folkier space. You know, people who like that kind of music seem to have enjoyed it. 
you're, you're writing about kind of, there's a real sense of place, isn't there? You're writing about British communities. There's a bit of sort of social history. It's modern folk writing, as you, as you say. Um, does that spring from the same impulse that made you want to be a politician in the first place? Is your interest in that common to both pursuits? Possibly. I, I think I'm half Irish, half Welsh, and was brought up as a Catholic in a kind of community where you had Irish, Welsh, Polish... Italian, you know, it's kind of a mixture of, of, of people in school. And, and that kind of music, you know, was always there in, in my life, that narrative storytelling type of music, as well as I, I sometimes wonder where my politics come from. It might partly come from that sort of Catholic thing uh, of, of social action being a very important part of what you do. It's not good enough just to moan about something. You're actually compelled to do something about it. And then in my teenage years, probably started reading Karl Marx. You get that mixture of things and you decide you you actually have to do something about it. The songs themselves on the album actually aren't very political songs. They're more to do with human stories and trying, as you quite rightly said, to have a sense of place. So they're they're songs that are largely located in and around Wales uh, and telling stories of people and places uh, from where I grew up. Have you had any reactions from your constituents about to your music? I had a, I, I did a gig actually in in the constituency uh, and was very fortunate to be backed by a great band, including Glenn Matlock, formerly of the Sex Pistols, who came down and played bass. <laughs> they seemed to enjoy the gig, and uh, a good crop of people came along, and uh, it got rave reviews. Because MPs are supposed to be, you know standing on soapboxes and being gestural and doing stuff for everybody. I think we're still quite surprised when they turn out to have an inner life, aren't we? (laughs) Is there any kind of reluctance when you sit down to be Kevin the songwriter with Kevin the MP in the back of your mind? I think I might have worried about it more years ago when you are trying to establish yourself as a politician. But I think so many people know that I do a lot of work around the creative industries and music in particular, and also within my own constituency in Cardiff West, it's actually a really significant employer, the creative industries, the BBC's Wales is headquarters here. There's, there's, it's been the largest growing part of the economy in Cardiff. So I think people accept that it is an appropriate thing to be involved in. And they also, you know, I, to be honest, I don't care. If someone were, were to be critical, I don't care. I think it's actually important as a politician to have some kind of hinterland mm. and not to spend your time 24 hours a day plotting and scheming politically but to actually you know be a bit of a human being and show a little bit of ankle about yourself <laughs> to your constituents <laughs> so you've been shadow minister for digital culture media and sport explain exactly what does or can a shadow minister do I mean, I don't do that anymore. I did it in the last parliament with um, with Tom Watson. And basically, yep. your basic function is to scrutinise the government and to hold them to account. Right. It, it's a difficult job. And I think that's what people, when they are critical of the Labour opposition, if you like, don't realise is A, you have no power. Uh, B, you really don't have the same sort of resources that the government has at its disposal. You know, it's got this magic carpet ride from the civil service providing it with advice and assistance and statistics, et cetera. And, and you are trying to hold the, the government to account, as well as to develop alternative policies that would be credible, you know, in a future government. Uh, so it, it's, it's 
It's not a great job. It's one day in government's worth a thousand days in opposition. That's what people say, and it is true. But it's a vital job in a democracy. It's vital that you try to do it properly, because otherwise the government can get away with all sorts of things you shouldn't get away with. So, Tom, you um, threw aside politics in, in, in favour of being in a band, and that worked out pretty well. And uh, Gomez seemed to burst sort of fully formed from, from nowhere, well, from Southport. Were you like the only five Dr John fans in town? How did that, uh, <laughs> how did that kind of coalesce? It's very hard to sort of describe how that coalesced. Um, four of us grew up uh, within a square mile of each other and, um, and went to the same sixth form college. We're kind of like people who are always searching for weird and wonderful music collectively. And that, that's when music was very hard to find, yeah. which is the, ma- the main point, I think, of Gomez in many ways and why we probably don't make a lot of sense now. Uh, in a way that we made enormous sense back then, was that we were trying to capture a lot of things that people didn't have access to. Yeah, <laughs> We were kind of trying to bring together lots of things that we loved that we knew people didn't know. And, it, and in that way, it, it, I think that's why it felt, it felt cohesive and yet very disparate at the same time, didn't it? You've got, you've got three different vocalists and, and writers in the, in the, in the band, but somehow it was clearly coming from a singular direction. What was really great about Gomez, especially when we started, was it was a bunch of lads supporting each other in their individual eccentricity. Yeah. <laughs> and and there was this team work of let's see how far down the road we can go with that crazy idea he just had. Yeah. Let's all go down that road together. <laughs> let's go with him. Let's see where let's he's going. Let's just go with him. Yeah. Let's just see where he's going. Who cares? Let's find What's out. What's he up to? Let's follow him. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh and there was a real joy in that. Yeah. A real joy in it. And that's um brilliant. and I think that's what people could hear on the record. Yeah. Yeah. You, you credited every member of the band as songwriters. Did that help keep you together or did it become a source of frustration d- down the line? We did look at other bands and we noticed that all the ones that had, did, that had gone the distance um, shared the money. Yeah. R.E.M., U2, uh, Radiohead. So we just did it. Um, and also, I suppose, politically, you know, <laughs> the, the, the cooperative spirit uh, probably runs deep in, in us as well. So, And when Bring It On came out, I mean, things went nuts, didn't they? You know, the album sold really well. You got the Mercury. You did two slots at Glastonbury that year. You got the cover of Mojo. Did you take all that in your stride or was it overwhelming? How, how did you react to it as a, as a unit? You don't know how overwhelming something is until many, many years later. When um, the PTSD's worn off. <laughs> yeah, I think... Uh, I can't speak for the rest of the band, but... Um, my dad got very, very ill, sort of halfway through that first year mm. of making that, of having all of that success. And so I was going back home and looking after him. And so I did a lot of it. I kind of was there in body, but not necessarily in spirit a lot of the time. Um, and, and so I, I suppose I didn't, I couldn't get taken or swept away with it. I didn't, I did, that didn't happen to me. Sometimes I regret the not sort of fully embracing the kind of rock and roll in my, in my youth. But there was kind of this moment where I could, but I couldn't. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? Mm. It, was, it was just like, ugh. You lost your Mercury Award in a pub, though, so that was, uh, that was something. 
<laughs> oh no, I definitely, I was, I was definitely having some fun. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yeah, it wasn't like, uh, yeah, it wasn't, it was all misery. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I don't, I don't remember much of it. Uh, if I'm absolutely honest, I mean, I think people in this country would be surprised quite how big you are in other parts of the world, um, and that endures, does it? People actually love our band. They 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 really love our band. I mean, it's it's it, it really we are Marmite. Um, people often ask me what advice to give to young artists, and I always say the 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 single best thing that you can do is not have success, but to have success whilst being yourself. <laughs> and that's the most important thing about artistry. And I think because Gomez is so singular, it will always have a place in the world. And you'll always be able to be true to that, won't you? Because it's you. Because it's us. Yeah. yeah, we can't. We don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let me ask you both a bit about some of the uh, questionnaire answers that you gave me. Kevin, um, you both, um, uh, both you and Tom said your first deep musical love was the Beatles, which I suppose is inevitable for people of, 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 of our generation. Um, but what do you think, what do you remember kind of hearing around the house? What was the first music that really kind of you responded to? Was it the fabs or was it other, were there other things going on at home? So genuinely it was the Beatles in the sense that as a small child growing up, you know, I was you know, four or five years of age when She Loves You was, you know, number one in the charts. And the Beatles absolutely dominated the, you know, the charts and the airwaves and the um, television screens, very much so. But there was also a bit of Irish music around, and that's definitely influenced me. And you can probably hear that if you've listened to any of my album, in the sense that things like the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem and all the Dubliners and those sorts of groups were things, you know, my father... And mother didn't have a lot of records, but what 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 they had, which weren't records that we bought, were, were those kind of Irish records. And we did also have that thing you find a lot of often in, in Celtic households of a tradition of you know coming back with a crate of light light ale from the pub and everybody being expected to to give a song or recite a poem. Mm. So from a very young age, um, I, you know, I assumed that happened in every household that everybody had to learn a party piece, and if you were called upon you'd be given the best of order and you would be listened to whilst you recited your poem or, or sang a song. So that was the kind of musical um, upbringing I, I, I sort of came from. I think the community sing-song thing is incredibly important, isn't it, for, particularly for, for, for a generation. I remember talking to uh, uh, interviewing Ray Davis and he, he, he told me that he feels that that's really what gave him his sense of what a pop song was. Yeah, I think um, you can absolutely imagine that with Kink's song. Um, I think that is something that is lost a bit, is is the sing-along. Tom and I, if I'm allowed to tell this story, Tom, we're in a pub in Brighton after, I think it was after the Labour Party conference, and we, we went into a pub and they had a piano and we started playing the piano and uh, and the guy comes over and says, oh, you know, you, you'll have to stop playing the piano. And we said, well, hang on a minute, this is supposed to be an Irish pub, you know, how can you have an Irish yeah. pub and not, not and have a piano here and not... not be able to have a sing song. Um, I think he, he changed his tune after one of our party brought in a pint of Guinness. But it's that it's it's that almost that attitude these days that making music yourself is is like a dangerous activity, you know, that, that might lead to other people joining in. I, I find yeah. that extraordinary. Why wouldn't you want um, you know, if you went along to an Irish bar particularly to to have a bit of a sing song. Tom, were you brought up with that kind of thing as well? Uh yeah, there was um 
there was a lot of music around, um, probably similarly to Kev, because I was raised Roman Catholic. So there was a lot of, there was a lot of church music for starters. Um, I was educated by the Irish Christian brothers, um, who were delightful. Um, nice. uh, <laughs> they weren't as bad as the nuns, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Southport also, you know, had, you know, where I grew up, there was the Bothy, which was this well-known folk club. And my dad was a massive folk fan. The Joan Byerses and the Tom Paxtons and the Dillons, obviously, and things like that. And then there was, you know, in the 70s, Pentangle, Fairport, all of that was in the house. But then my mum was like listening to like a weird mix of like Roxy music and Georges Bressance. Really, really, really Catholic tastes. But yeah, there was always a sing-song. There was always a sing-song, whether that was for religious reasons or for drunken reasons. Or both, drunken religious reasons. <laughs> drunken religious reasons, yeah. Very often the, the biggest sing-songs, you know, it involved a wake or something like that with uh, people turning up. We lived opposite the Catholic Church, people turning up afterwards and uh, that, that they were often the most joyous occasions, ironically. Tom, in the questionnaire, you uh, mentioned uh, one record that you would save in a fire as uh, Gree Gree by uh, Dr. John, the Night Tripper. Tell us about your relationship with that record. It's a curious thing, because um, I wouldn't say this about any other Dr. John record. I don't know why it got so in me. It just, it has this curious, spooky, brilliant... It's the voodoo. Uh, it, the, there is voodoo in that record. There's definitely voodoo in that record, mm. and it and it just does something for me that no other record ever has. It tickles your mojo pin, doesn't it? It, it really does, and it, it's it's, okay. it's so it's so hard to 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 put my finger on it. It's so authentically lost in its own path. It sounds like a bunch of people who've all committed to doing something insane, and and they're loving it. <laughs> I, I recommend to anybody that they just put headphones on and sit down and listen to Grigory all the way through. It's like a, it's 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 as good as any feature film. And it's thoroughly unique, isn't it? He never made another record like it. No one else has ever made a, another record like it. But like a lot of things that I love, I can't tell if it's naive folly or it's the most brilliant thing that's ever happened. Well, look, let's uh, let's talk about the records you've you've selected uh, for us to to discuss. So, Kevin, let's start with you and uh, your choices from 1976. To tell us what it is. It's uh, the. Joan Al and Arbor Trading album. It's actually um, not her first album, even though it's a sort of, um, that's the name of the album. It was a, a record I bought when I was 16 years of age. Uh, and I still think it sounds incredible. I think Joan Alma Trading is, obviously she's not a completely neglected talent and has been much acknowledged by institutions like the Islands Academy and so on for her contribution. But when you think about it, a black female solo British artist you know, in the 1970s, you know, making this incredible music, this wonderful songwriter, wonderful singer with these plethora of different influences. It's just a brilliant album. It's jazzy, it's funky, it's also acoustic and folky, and it it it's, it still sounds absolutely um, brilliant. Only got to number 12, I think, back in the day in the album charts, which I believe is a travesty. And of course, it did. It did offer up her, her most successful single in, in love and affection. But the whole album is brilliant. Well, let's hear a bit of it and uh, then talk some more. Brand new dandy, first class. 
problem takes your man Sends you rushing to the mirror Push your eyebrows and say There's more beauty in you than anyone I remember who walked the warm sand beside you More dear here, let the waves come rushing She took the worry from your head But then again, she put trouble in your heart instead Then you fall down to the ground, down to the ground Journal my trading from her self-titled third album uh, came out in 1976 was the second album for AM, A&M and you heard Down to Zero Somebody Who Loves You and Love and Affection so Kevin uh, I'm a couple of months older than you but I remember this record having quite a big impact when it came out did, is that how you recall it? It, it it got a lot of attention didn't it yeah it did I think it was it was definitely a breakthrough album she made a couple of albums before um, but combined with the impact of the single um, it was very, very well received, and she got 
you know, quite a lot of uh, radio play and, you know, featured on Whistle Test and, and things like that. So it was, it was definitely the big breakthrough for her. And it's probably not a coincidence. I mean, looking back, I didn't know this at the time, but when you realise that Glyn Johns produced it and some of the, you know, the, the, the musicians that are on it, I think the bass and drums on this album are absolutely fantastic. And then you check out and you see there's Kenny Jones who's playing the drums. Actually, it's uh, Kenny's on a couple of tracks. The, most of the drums are by Dave Mattox from Fairport Convention. Uh, Glyn Johns had just done the uh, Rising for the Moon album with him. And then the the bass is great on it. I'm not sure. Is it somebody else? Another Dave, isn't it? On the uh, on bass, I think on the album. Yeah, a guy called Dave Marquis. Yeah. It it sounds um it sounds fantastic. Some of those tracks you just played are beautiful tracks on the album. There are also some incredibly funky tracks too as well. Yes. Um and um, you know I I think it's a record that's as fresh as ever today. Can you describe the sound of it? Because that's one of the most incredible things about this record, I think, isn't it? It's got a very unusual sound. It's very open and very clean, I think, the sound of the 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 the, the album. And sonically, it seems to sound to me like it's and you know uh, there's a there's a lot of space between the instruments. It's, it's a very there's a very clear and distinctive you know um, separation between them, and that comes across even if you're not playing it on vinyl. Uh, and I, you know, I'm not a production expert, unlike um, you guys. But to me, it's a really beautiful sounding record, and very, very, very clear and very open is the way I describe it. Glyn Johns rates it as one of the best uh, productions he ever did. Um, in his book, he said he'd take rough mixes home and listen to them all the time. He absolutely loved it; became one of his the favourites of his career. And yet, as usual with him, he very grumpily turned the offer down <laughs> to work with her <laughs> at first, and then. Um, um, uh, what's his name? Derek Green of A&M persuaded him to come into the office when Joan was in there and she played the songs in front of him and Glyn went, oh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, having watched um, quite recently the uh, the Get Back documentary and, and seeing, you know, you, you realise Glyn Johns is the unsung hero of that whole um, film when yes. he's sort of, you know, leaning in and actually advising Paul McCartney on the, the middle bit of uh, Let It Be on, you know, yeah. uh, and, and actually saving the day, you know, on what was an impossibly anarchic, chaotic job. And then when the camera's off, obviously doing all the mixes and all that kind yeah. of stuff, working probably 24-7, um, you do realise what an incredible, what an incredibly important figure he is in, in British music. Um, Dave Mattox was very impressed with the drum sound that he got. Uh, he's famous, isn't he, uh, Glyn, for having a very simple drum miking technique yes. of just using three three mics. Um, what, you know, they use one front of the bass, then one overhead, and then one, you know, over by the floor tom. But um, it is a, it's just a beautiful, clean sound that comes through. And drums and bass on this album is just worth listening to sometimes just... Uh, tuning your ears into that for some of these well, tracks. Well, Mattox said that the very late delay that you hear all the way through Love and Affection on the snare really impressed him. And he asked Glyn what device mm. he was using and discovered that Glyn was just doing it manually with tape echo, putting up, putting up <laughs> yeah. the fader every time Dave hit a rim shot. Um, yeah. And yeah. that was his way of working. He just sort of, it was very... Um, uh, instinctive and he just let them play apparently he wouldn't he wouldn't fiddle with the sound at all he just said you give me the sound you play it and I'll mix it <laughs> and uh, um, and Dave Marquis the bass player said uh, I've seen an interview with him and he said I've not met, met anybody since that excited me as a musician and brought out the best in me and all of us he was not always easy to get on with in fact at times he was a real pain in the neck and I guess so were we all 
but it was always his session, mm. very old school, I'm the boss. And, and Joan said, he kept saying to her, you can really play the guitar, and I believed him. So I thought, all right, then mm. I'll do this album for Glyn. I made a very special effort to try and do it really well because he seemed to believe that I could do it. Well, and, it, you know, and, and isn't that the essence of a great producer, really, yeah. is somebody who can actually give the musicians uh, the confidence, you know, to, 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 to shine. And I think, uh, I can, you know, I've, I've met Joanna Matrade and she actually came and, and helped launch the bill that, uh, that I introduced about music streaming. Oh, really? She came along to the launch in Parliament, yeah. which was an absolute, you know, honour to meet her. And, but I think deep down inside, my sense of her is that she's quite a shy person, really. Yes. And, and probably at an earlier stage of her career might have even been even shyer. And it comes across sometimes in the lyrics of her songs. But I can imagine that having a producer like Lynn Johns say something like that to Joanna Trading really did work because there is some tremendous acoustic guitar work on the, uh, on the album, um, uh, you know, that really brings out that percussive, you know, exciting style that she's got when she opens up. Yeah. Tom, I can't imagine this album meant much 20 years later when you guys were listening to records. Did you, did you know it at all before this? Um, I've sort of come in and out of checking it a few times. Um, I suppose this is the first time I really concentrated on it uh, and had a proper think about it. Um, and and I think it's firstly, it's curious that she isn't more cited and lauded. Mm. I mean, what a, a remark! I mean, what an incredible figure! Yeah, <laughs> just thinking about what she did and what that represented at the time, it's quite unbelievable. Things that I was surprised by, I was surprised by how much her vocal delivery and a lot of what the way she sort of carries it is related to Van Morrison. That, that, there's, there's some kind of DNA of Van in Joan's work. Yeah. What's, what's quite interesting about this record is how muscular it is. I mean, it's funny, if she's a shy woman, lyrically she's not. She's not introspective. She's, like, she's writing very universally and in a very give-a-fuck kind of way. And that's really interesting and must have been extraordinarily powerful in the mid-1970s. Yes, and she's talking about you and them, and she's not really writing about herself, she claimed at the time, whether that's true or not, and she was trying to sort of hide what was going on. Um, But, yeah, she takes a very unusual stance in the songs. And the songs don't have traditional verses and choruses and middle eights and things, do they? That's, that's, I mean, that's kind of the van bit. There's like, there's, 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 there's some van uh, structure madness going on in this um, that you really sense. I I, I love lots of things about this record. Um, But I do love the position, the sort of unsympathetic position of the of the protagonist in a lot of the songs, yeah. <laughs> and and it's really good. You know, I'm not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. You know, yes. <laughs> what a great opening it's line a to a love song, line, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's just really bold. So much of the vocal delivery is just so I'm just mm. existing in this moment. Yeah, and fuck anybody else it's so singular but the thing about joan is that she really didn't have any sort of followers did she did nobody kind of came out after this doing a similar thing yeah she was she was she was a one-off at the time in terms of you know a female solo black artist singer songwriter and and maybe that's her background a little bit because you know, she, she, she came from a small Caribbean island originally and then, you know, went to Birmingham at age 
seven, I think. And her music, therefore, wasn't, you know, isn't, it wasn't reggae, it wasn't soul, it wasn't funk, it wasn't folk, but it had lots of those elements in it. It was very distinctively hers, I thought. Punk's just about to land, right? Punk is just about to happen, or is even just happening as this comes out. So why this kind of doesn't continue musically is probably a lot to do with that. And in fact, in, in some ways, because she is evoking that quite established uh, music forms within what she's doing, in a way it kind of sets it back a little bit because it's kind of a funny thing. It makes it sound a bit older than it is. Yeah. Because this is what, 76? 76, yeah. This record came out. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's it's the absolute height of sound recording. I mean, the record sounds unbelievable, mm. but you can't help but think the clash are just about to appear. Yes. The kids aren't going to be listening to this pretty soon. And I, I suppose that probably didn't help the continuation of this idea, of this no. paradigm. Well, she did it for another two albums with, with Glyn. She had two more records produced by him, and those those three albums are sort of the peak of her her career kind of commercially but then she kind of just carried on forever I mean she's still going she's just she can go anywhere and be Joe and Armour trading and then she'll always fill a venue but yeah there's not many people sort of following in her wake in stylistically from the from the sound of these records as you say I mean I'm fascinated by the way that punk what I feel it actually killed off it didn't kill off prog that that sort of carried on in terms of its history what what it really killed off is all the acts that were signed to A&M like like Joan Armour Trading it's people like Gallagher and Lyle and Andy Fairweather Lowe and and all those kind of acts just stopped being relevant didn't they <laughs> do, do, do you remember that period um uh, Kevin uh I, 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 I was thinking yeah. of of bands like do you remember a band called City Boy I don't. I mean, I remember Gallagher and Lyle very strong. I don't remember well, City Boy. City Boy um, made seven albums for Phonogram. Two or three of them right. produced by Mutt Lang. They were they were sort of mm. massive in a, in a way for for a while somewhere, but nobody remembers them. They've completely mm. vanished, you know. And it's that sort of middle ground music that just completely was atomized by 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 punk. Really, it was Year Zero in in many regards. It was a complete change of the paradigm. There's no no doubt about that. And I was a teenager at the time and all of a sudden, you know, was, you know, sticking safety pins in my school blazer. <laughs> That'll show them. <laughs> yeah. a radical acts of that kind. And going along to uh, the Rock Against Racism gig in, you know, Victoria Park in London or all, all that sort of thing. And two of my two of my friends were on the cover of the Observer magazine having attended the, the Sex Pistols concert in Caffilly, you know, taste-wise. Uh, it was a there was a big rejection of anything that that perhaps was considered or well produced, and I I, I confess I was a fan of, of people like Gallagher and Lyle, people who, who knew how to write a great song, you know, with 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 interesting lyrics and, and great melody. The idea of sitting down with a guitar and um, and being a singer songwriter kind of was was um, was knocked out by that decade, really following just at the cusp, as as Tom Wright says uh, in '76 when all that started to happen. I think one reason why the funkiness is odd on this record is because it's being played by members of Fairport Convention and, <laughs> and, and, and stuff. And everybody is slightly out of their comfort zone. Um, and I've seen interviews with the musicians, and that's what they really loved in a way. They didn't really know how to play what Joan was 
playing them. You know, she'd play these songs and they sounded so strange, they didn't really have a way in. So that was part of the fun. And the way that Glyn Johns recorded it, it was all done in three-hour sessions. They kind of had one or two goes at this and then moved on, you know. And that's why this record, I think, sounds so unusual because it's almost people who've really only just kind of got their heads around it. Uh, you know what I'm like? I think all records should be made in that way. Yeah. I don't think... <laughs> I'm a great believer in first take. I'm a great believer in... in I'm, I don't much like mastery in music. I, I think it usually kills the mood. Uh, un, unless you're like a genius, unless you're John Coltrane, yeah. in which case, go ahead. There's a curious thing on this record where they're always playing on the and. It's like, duh, duh. Da, 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 all the way through the album. That started to annoy me after a while, but I really, I really enjoyed it. Otherwise, I, 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 I'm going to defend the, I'm going to defend the funkiness. <laughs> I think because I, I you know, I, 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 there's jazziness to it as well. I think, and I think that's those are Jones chords, if you like. And some of these musicians might not be familiar with playing those chords and rhythms, but I think. Um, I think Glyn John's brought that out pretty well on the record. I think uh, Jimmy Jewell's uh, sax solo on Love and Affection teed up the one in um, Baker Street as well, didn't it? That's Quite possibly, the, yeah. There's a very similar tone Yeah, to you it. get that feel. That, sorry, at the end of this album, or on the second to the last song, or the second to last song, there is the most extraordinarily loud guitar solo I have ever heard on a record. <laughs> yeah, that's in Tool in the Saddle. The guitar comes on. And it is twice as loud as the rest of the record. I mean, I was like, what is that, Glenn? Like, you weren't riding, he wasn't riding the fader that day. Yeah, and that's Jerry Donahue as well, who's got a naturally piercing tone. He always plays that really kind of intense piercing note. It's extraordinary business. I could feel it definitely around the back of my eyes. It was... <laughs> <laughs> I actually loved it. I was like, this is daring. This is, this is really daring. Just to give a bit of context as to what was around at that point, uh, Sounds Magazine made this their album of the year, and number two was Joni Mitchell's Hegira, number three was Steely Dan's Royal Scam, and number four was Bob Dylan's Desire. So that's the world that was months away from, from being destabilised. In, in a sense, it is the last moment where it's acceptable to play minor seventh, major seventh chords and mm. ninths and things like that for uh, before you get into the... The punkier where, where everybody has to play just uh you know barred major chords for a few years and there's a sophistication i suppose to all of those albums that um uh you know became unfashionable in in the period that followed i think it deserves to be in that company personally oh god it's an amazing record i mean let's be clear it's unbelievable anyone who's not listened to this i was i was quite taken aback by how much i liked it absolutely and i i really do think it deserves to be included in the pantheon of the greats it's got the feel of a blue or an astral weeks with just everything coming right in the moment you know and, and that's certainly how she remembers it and how glenn johns remembers it um, i should also put in a word for the follow-up show some emotion i think is almost as good the equal of this so that's worth hearing too uh do check it out if if you don't know it uh right let's move on tom let's go to the album that you've brought in for us tell us what it is and then we'll give it a spin it's vintage violence by john kale Such a beautiful thing to do Left the 
castle in Spain In an ambulance all the way Could it be that the clocks really stop? Go home, I want to go home, I want to go back to Adelaide. It's time for a change, don't want to be late. It's probably night in Adelaide. In a day or two, I'll be there asking for you to come back to Adelaide with me. The weather, they're so good. So pass me the So my way to Adelaide It's time to cry I'll be there tonight The trains and the boats And planes are on time But before I go I knock knocking on your front door Be sure to say goodbye To your friends And to all my friends From 1970, John Cale's Vintage Violence. You heard Hello There, Adelaide, Big White Cloud and Ghost Story. Well, Tom, what you were saying earlier about Gomez, where it was sort of let's follow this bloke down his peculiar path, <laughs> that's what the listener's required to do on, on this record, isn't it? Well, I don't think he knows what path he's on. That's, and that's, that's the joy of this record. This is a man who doesn't really know what he's doing. And I love it for that reason. I sometimes think that that we, as a as critical thinkers, 
uh, lend too much importance to the intention of artists. I think this record is totally unintentional or it's a, it's a sort of accident. And it, this record really is a curiosity. And I don't think it's even a record that John particularly likes. <laughs> Obviously, it sounds like uh, this guy who's got all these avant-garde credentials, who's just been in the Velvet Underground. It sounds like he's basically been listening to Sweetheart of the Rodeo for a summer and then gone into the studio and is trying to sort of make of all of that make sense. And I don't think he quite can make it make sense yet. This record was given to me years ago by a guy called Howard Petrozello, who is a, a radio promoter in the, in the United States. He gave it to me years ago and he said, there's something about this record that reminds me, that it reminds me of you. <laughs> and he handed it to me. <laughs> and, uh, and I knew, and the first time I listened to it, I knew exactly what he meant. It's just a messy old record, isn't it? And it's, yeah. but there's moments, I think there's moments of absolute brilliance in there. I think this is a brilliant record for putting on as a sort of um, palate cleanser. I love, mm. I love sticking it on when I've been like listening to lots of really quite intense things. And yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sorbet. It's the savoury. <laughs> it's a savoury sorbet. <laughs> 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 I, I, I'm probably not making a strong argument for this record, but I, 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 there's just something very, very charming about it. And I think it's partly that I don't think that they know what they're doing. Yeah, I'd agree. I was charmed by it. I was completely floored by it when I first played it. I was like, what the fuck's this? And um, it, it, and then the more I've had to play it to kind of research it and 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 to to think what I think of it, the more I've grown to love it. It's a, it seems to me one of those records you have to. It helps to have a relationship with it to love it. What about you, Kevin? How, how did what did you make of it? Um, well, first of all, I already decided I had to like it because it's by a Welsh artist, and uh, if you come from a small country like Wales, you know, you've, you've got to like whatever anybody produces uh, from, from Wales. <laughs> Solidarity <laughs> is required. Solidarity all the way. But actually, I, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a sort of, a, 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 I, I thought it was like a country album, really. But, but I think Tom was hinting at that a little bit. Is perhaps the country album you'd expect from a West Whalian via the, Wel- you know, the Velvet Underground. And, and if it is a sorbet, maybe it's a lava bread sorbet, Tom, you know, with that um, yes. savoury Westwalian fishy kind of uh, something fishy about it taste. Um, and I, I had exactly the same feeling uh, when I listened to it in, in relation to you and Gomez, uh, particularly when I was listening to Big White Cloud. I thought I could, I could absolutely imagine this as a, as a Gomez track. And I loved the way uh, that the, 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 you know, the, 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 the multi vocals didn't tract you know to each other it was very there's a lovely loose tightness about it in that you know it's well played but very loosely played and in that kind of I think under rehearsed way that you you said that you like Tom and at, at the end of the day um you know I I I really enjoyed listening to it and that was just on the first listen through so I'm sure with more familiarity I'll get to like it even more I wasn't uh, I wasn't expecting the country rock feel Tom, um, <laughs> it's very, it's very Sweetheart of the Rodeo. If you listen to them back to back, I, you, Sweetheart of the Rodeo came out in '68, and he was recording this in early '69, mm. and 
I wouldn't be surprised if that's not it. I mean, anyone expecting droning violas and the velvet sound is going to be disappointed, aren't they? There's a bit of viola there. <laughs> that's the funny thing, though, isn't it? Because the velvet, he splits up from the velvets and the velvets make their most pop album and he makes his most pop album, right? They make Loaded without him and he makes this. Him leaving makes them both more commercial. Yes. <laughs> It's because obviously he, he does Paris 19 with Lyle George from Little Feet, and so he's he's very interested in this direction of Americana. So I don't think we should be that surprised. It reminds me a little bit of um, No Other by Gene Clark. Do you know that record? Ah, yeah, I know that record very well. Yeah, yeah. no, of course, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I love I love that record. Um, I love all those sort of. Uh, there's a there's a sort of period of time between I suppose the late sixties and early early seventies where there's a lot of these sort of one off peculiar brilliant albums that that are my favourite records of all time. Be it this or Nilsson Schmilson or that Gene Clark record or yeah. you know I think there's the kind of these these sort of peculiar are oh, boldly eccentric. <laughs> And and sort of sound amateurish on some level as well. Yeah, and have sort of humour in them as well, don't they? And uh... yeah, very funny, very daft. Yeah. Sometimes when I think about what's happened to music and 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 the way the music is funded and stuff, and going back to what we were originally talking about, what I worry about most is the fact that people can't just be in a studio and muck around. There there isn't the money in the business to do that mm. anymore. Mm. So we're not hearing so many records like that anymore. Of, of groups of people making music together and having a yeah. good time, which is what I think Grigory is fundamentally as well. We're, we're going yeah. back to the community sing song, aren't we? In a way, we are. <laughs> we are back to the community sing song. I'm a great believer in the community sing song. This record was uh, co-produced by Lewis Merenstein, who did Astral Weeks. Uh, Greil Marcus, the American critic, described it as an exquisite, unheard solo album that was in some ways comparable to Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. The personal vision was that intense, the execution almost as graceful. I, I think graceful execution is a bit of a stretch, but um, I kind of... I, I, he's, he's taking the piss there, isn't he? I sort of know what he means. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he holds it up in, 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 that re, in that regard. How would you describe... You say you don't... Kale doesn't know what he's doing here, but how would you describe it? I mean, if you think Randy Newman has a thing or Nielsen has a thing... What's John Cale's thing like? I don't think he quite knows what the confection is going to sound like. I think he's imagining it in real time. And yeah. it does evoke the sort of eccentricity of the kinks. But at the same time, in this sort of curious Americana, like pure country spirit in places. I think this record could easily be held up as alongside something like the way people think of Nilsson Schmilson. Yeah. If more people knew about it. Because one of those records that people just spend more time with because they they are told again and again that it's a, a quirky piece of genius. And that's kind of where it sits for me. This mad Welsh genius who who has already changed the face of popular music is just embarking on a different adventure. He just hasn't quite got the recipe. Yeah. He hasn't got the recipe and that's... And and I and I love I love the fact that he doesn't know what the recipe is because he's not controlling it and he's not clearly not got the money and the studio time to perfect it either, yeah. you know. Like like Kev says, the vocals are all over the place. Like because you wouldn't, you know, you'd spend more time making sure that the double track vocal is more on the money, but he yeah. but but there clearly isn't time to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it's got this this, this 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 vocal that's constantly coming in and out of focus throughout the entire record. It's yeah. it's uh, oh yeah, I just adore it. I adore it. 
Do you know what it really reminded me of? Do you know Joy of a Toy by Kevin Ayres? Kevin Ayres is one of those artists that I am constantly reminded that I'm supposed to have spent more time with. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know really whether he's worth kind of going too deeply into. Joy of a Toy is a fantastic record, and most of his other records get a bit sort of hung up on songs about bananas and things. I'm not sure they're quite as strong. But there is that same sense of absurdity in, in what he does uh, that I hear here. And in fact, the first track on this record, Hello There, sounds almost identical to something off, off Joy of a Toy. Um, and I think you'd appreciate that sense of we're going to have a good time, but it's going to be a bit weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have a weird good time. Time together, yeah. And then, um, and then, of course, they did work together, didn't they, on a live album with Eno and Nico, that June the 1st record. I don't know if you've ever heard that. Um, so they did have a relationship. Kale and, and Ayers did, did do stuff together. So I wonder if Kale was a sort of a secret Ayers fan or, or acolyte in some, in some respects and, and, and picked that up on, on, on this album. I think that would make sense, that he was a soft machine fan. Uh, yeah, coming in from that direction, of course, yeah. Uh, now, I really loved getting to know this record. It's uh, full of, of strange delights, and uh, I'm really going to enjoy returning to it, I think. Um, and it's got a standalone feel about it, hasn't it? It doesn't really bear any relation to his other work, so that makes it uh, all the more fascinating. Right, let's move on to my choice, which is also from 1970, made by a backroom boy from Nashville. His name was Bergen White, and his album was given the strange title of For Women Only.
That's Bergen White from the album For Women Only from 1970, released on an obscure label called SSS International. And what you heard there was Look At Me, On and On, The Bird Song, and It's Over Now. Well, when this was uh, reissued by Revola in 2004, I reviewed it in Mojo and gave it five stars. It seemed to me uh, to be that rare thing, a genuine lost classic, a really good record that nobody knew about, uh, made by an interesting figure in the sort of background of music history as an early showcase for his talents. Bergen White had become a, a very highly sought-after arranger, famed for work with uh, Tony Joe White. He did um, Polk Salad Annie, uh, which led to Elvis Presley's version of the same song, and he'd done some other stuff with Elvis, like You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, and he was even an occasional member of the Jordanaires. And down the years, he's worked with all kinds of country stars, including Dolly Parton, Faith Hill, Tim McGraw and Garth Brooks. But uh, this record was made just when he was starting out. He was born in um, Miami, Oklahoma in 1939. He was the son of a restless preacher man, a Baptist minister who took his family all over the place before finally settling in Nashville when Bergen was in his early teens. And then he joined a local band called The Todds with his friend Bobby Russell, who'd go on to write uh, Little Green Apples and stuff for Bobby Goldsborough. And then after college, Bergen was teaching maths and science for a while and, and Russell lured him back into music and they got a gig as star vocalist for a label that did supermarket versions of current hits. So he got a lot of experience doing that and later on worked for producer Bill Justice as a junior arranger and joined the hot rod group uh, Ronnie and the Daytonas as the vocalist. They had a hit called GTO and that got him a singles deal with Monument in 1967 and then led to this album, which he cut over a period of 18 months to show what he could do, basically. It includes session players like Charlie McCoy, David Briggs, Wayne Moss and Matt Gaydon and uh, was finally released in 1970 on the label belonging to a publisher called Shelby Singleton uh, who gave it this ridiculous title and uh, put a slapped a soppy mood music sleeve on it. Um, which is so wrong for its contents, it's no wonder it didn't catch on. But if anyone had taken the trouble to listen to the thing, they'd have heard this lovely collection of sort of Brock, beautifully scored songs with uh, vivid shades of Brian Wilson. There's David Gates, Left Bank, Nielsen, Jimmy Webb. There are songs by Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, Mickey Newbury, Towns Van Zandt. Uh, there's a cover of Little Anthony and the Imperials, Hurt So Bad. Um, and the David Gates, uh, we mentioned there, the song Look At Me, which um, was also on Bread's first album, which is this lovely sort of bit of hippie existentialism. Uh, so he picked some really nice covers, but then he also wrote a lot of material himself, um, most of which is uh, is very good. Uh, you heard bits of the Bird song there, sort of Baroque murder ballad, which came out as a single, the pumping on and on with a great uh, sort of falsetto four season style chorus. And it's over now, which has uh, got a nod towards good vibrations. And if you've ever gone digging for sunshine pop or orc pop or anything like that, um, I think you'll, you'll, you'll adore it. Uh, what do you make it, fellas? Tom? It's, it's sort of cartoonish in a sort of way. It's really like unbelievably always in that gear. The, the, the album title doesn't help it, does it, for women only? It doesn't help it. Um, I wonder why they got that name. I wonder what they were thinking of when they did that. Were they just like, this is all a bit milk toast. We'll just kind of try and sell it to the girls. What were they, what were they, what was it? What? I think it was just the nature of the label. It's, you know, rack job, supermarket music. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, so it was just, yeah, marketed in that way. This is kind of romantic. Let's call it for women only. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. I wouldn't have opened with that opening track. But other than that, it's really, really, really great. Uh, Brian Wilson, obviously, strongly represented on this record. Any Harry Nielsen fan will be happy in this record. Yep. 
Paul Williams, all of that stuff. I mean, he could have just been one of those guys, couldn't he? Yeah, absolutely. He could have just been one of those guys, <laughs> but he's not. And that's curious. And, and then you hear the career he had and you're like, oh, he was one of the sensible ones who went and got a backroom job and just made his money and yeah. paid the mortgage and stayed out of the way. Um, <laughs> sensible lad. And especially with such a starry name, Bergen White. I mean, what an incredible name. <laughs> what a disappointment not to be a star with a name like that. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, it sounds like a kind of a California white wine, really, doesn't it? You know, uh, yeah, that's right. Bergen I'll have white. a glass of the Bergen white. Um, yeah, I don't think I took to it quite as readily as, uh, as Tom. Um, I get the opening track, it sounded to me like the, you know, kind of the opening credits for the Mary Tyler Moore show. She is free. She's free. She's yeah. a free one. You know, yeah, I suppose at the same time Paul McCartney was writing another day, so there was a lot of, there were a lot of songs about that sort of theme and, and, and so on. I wondered in that one song on there that Barry Mann wrote on his own, and the lyric is Lisa was a moment and she stayed for just a while, whether that was a pun on the on Cynthia Wilde, but maybe you know i'm a fan of david gates's particular brand of very soft rock and and you know he's got a, a couple of nice songs and then I, I also like towns van zand but i think i need to listen to it a bit more I, I, I certainly you know picked up on all the references that you were making in listening to it and but i felt a little bit sometimes as if the kitchen sink was being thrown at the arrangement um of, of some yeah. of the songs um uh, but i sense it might it might it might grow with more listens. Yeah, you could argue the strings are a bit overwrought on this record. It made me appreciate how good they are on the Joan Armour Trading album, actually. Brian Rogers' arrangements on there are very subtle and unusual, I thought. Uh, really, really good. I think they're very subtle on that album, and the strings are, are you know, all over this, aren't they? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and, and that's why it felt, I suppose, a little bit like a, a, a little bit of an a, of a, of over-sugared dessert to me when I... I listened to it, but you know, I've only listened to it once through. And there's definitely a shop window aspect to it, isn't it? He's showing off a little bit with the arrangements on this. Yeah, quite possibly, and and that makes sense in the context that you put it in of that that sort of you know rack album that would be put out in the equivalent of Walmart today. It's interesting. You said it took eighteen months to record. Presumably, he was just doing it when he could get some studio time and, yeah. and have access to an orchestra, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But having said that, I do feel it hangs together surprisingly well. It's a consistent style. This record, I think, would massively benefit from a different running order and remixed with a sense of that running order. It's everything on all the time, which is a mistake. (laughs) It opens with a track that sounds like Fifth Dimension and that puts you off. And if it started with something bold and wonderful, I think it probably would be easier to find as a record because obviously it's quite hard to get past that first track i think because it's so whatever that thing is post hair bubblegum yeah yeah it's very hard to describe but it's that <laughs> and then there's loads of cool stuff after it um and and i and i think sometimes like too many ballads are put back to back and stuff like that uh, and with the same arrangements hmm. uh and and so that doesn't help it but like it, it, any one of the tracks taken in isolation and they're incredible yeah, that final track it, it's it's over now. I mean, as a case in point, I think that's probably the most up tempo track on the record. Is it? Um, I think on and on's pretty. Yeah, know, yeah on and on as well. Yeah, uh, but it, it's 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 a long time to get to that escape from the the ballads after ballad. It's probably suffered slightly from being yeah kind of 
didn't have a budget for mixing it or something. You know, it's sort of mm. probably these are probably desk mixes or uh, it, it may not even been made as an album. You know, it might have just been a bunch of demos that he had that this guy put out. Yeah. I don't know. You know, it, it's not really known what the the sort of intent behind the record was. He's still alive though, Bergen. Maybe I could uh, get hold of him. <laughs> yeah, you should. You should chase the guy up. I, it sounds to me like a collection of, yes. of what was was lying around, and they stuck the thing that they thought was most commercial at the start. Yeah, he's a totally clearly like I mean an incredible talent. Like an and you can understand why everybody wanted him to work with them yeah. you know you know it, it's all there i would i would i would look I mean, it'd be amazing to get hold of the original tapes and remix this record yeah he could make something unbelievable it out could of be the, incredible couldn't out it? Of yeah. the bare bones of it file under can't eat a whole one is that what we're saying yeah quite possibly it's like an extra helping of a trifle really isn't it and i i think um when did the harpsichord? Is, is this the last sort of gasp of the harpsichord in 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 pop music? It's very prominent as well. On, on yeah, this I, and, and I love a harpsichord in in, in pop. Harpsichord, but it seemed to disappear then, didn't it? You know, at some, I think possibly around this moment. You can't gig with them. That's why. Oh mate, have you ever seen someone trying to tune a harpsichord? Oh my lord, that, <laughs> yeah. that's the day you won't get back. Why did Baroque pop never take off? Can't tune a harpsichord. And the Mellotron, uh, famously, whenever you change the power supply, uh, change the speed of the motors, so you could never get that to stay quite right as well. So, so. <laughs> Right, well, look, the clock, I'm afraid, is looking at its watch, so it's time for us to uh, draw this to a close now. We've been listening to Joan Armour Trading's self-titled album from 1976, Vintage Violence by John Cale from 1970, and For Women Only by Bergen White, also from 1970. Thanks for bringing those albums in. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks a lot, Jim. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Jim. It was a lot of fun. Bye. And don't forget, you can hear all the music we've been discussing today, all three albums and other tunes that have entered the conversation, by going along to Spotify, You're Not On The List, Season 2, Episode 6, and there's an accompanying playlist for you to enjoy. And do join us uh, next time for more of the same when my guests, if all goes to plan, will be music journalist Joe Kendall, and the first appearance of an artist who's actually had an album on the show, the very great Maria McKee will be with us. So I'm really looking forward to that. And if you'd like to leave any comments on the show, pop along to jimirvin.com. There's an email facility there where you can leave us messages and anything that comes in that we like the look of, we'll read it out on future episodes. And please, if you get a chance, like, subscribe or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, whatever platform you're on, uh, anything that drives new listeners towards us, we always are incredibly grateful for. Thank you very much for everyone that's done that so far. Right, that's all the housekeeping. Thank you once again for listening and do join us again next time for more You're Not On The List. Until then, bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>